Right. Uh, good evening. Welcome to this LSE event. Um, I've been told I mustn't forget to introduce myself and to explain why on earth I'm sitting here with Zelda. Zelda Lagrange, by the way, uh, not Zelda Lagrange, as many of you uh, may have deduced by some sort of perverse mechanism of the Afrikaans language that translates into Lagrange. Yeah, that's right. That's right. correct. Um, my name is John Carlin. Um, Zelda and I, the reason I'm here, I think, chiefly is that we're friends, or at least I like to flatter myself that we're friends. Maybe not after tonight. Maybe no? not after tonight. <laughs> <laughs> um, I also like to think that I know South Africa, where I've lived many years, fairly well, so that mm. um, uh, hopefully we'll be able to have a, a sensible conversation. Uh, Zelda and I met for lunch many times. We never had a sensible conversation before, but always, <laughs> we'll try tonight. There's always a first time, uh, and um, yeah, the, the the general run there. Yes, I've got to tell you to turn off mobile phones, just myself, which I haven't done. Um, and we're going to be chatting the two of us here for about 45 minutes, and then there'll be um, it'll be open to questions from you, and then whoops. You need a Zelda. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and then um, at 8 o'clock we'll be finishing and Zelda will be signing books. I think that's the sort of protocol thing, so I have mm. to say. Um, and then as for Zelda, I imagine most of you by and large know who, who she is, but I was given some notes here by the LSE who noted she was born in 1970, that she joined the President's office in 1994, and it says here she served Nelson Mandela in different capacities over 19 years, ranging from typist, assistant, private secretary, private secretary, manager of his office, spokesperson, and aide de camp, which actually falls sadly short of what the role you had with Nelson Mandela. You were also, as I know for a fact, the gatekeeper, the bodyguard. To keep people the, like you away, yes. The, yeah. the, exactly, yeah. as I remember very painfully. Um, you know, the, the physiotherapist, the, the food advisor, um, the butler. I mean, the book could have been called, you know, what Zelda saw, you know, what the butler saw. Mm. Um, anyway, so let's just get started. And um, in the first part of the book, you explain, you talk about your... Um, your upbringing, um, blithely unaware of the sort of country you were living in, which actually was precisely what the apartheid system you lived under for the first 24 years of your life attempted to do, to keep you sort of shielded. Um, you know, you were born in 1970, there were sort of momentous events, I mean, 76, the Soweto uprising, which was a great catalyst for all the changes that would come later. You had Steve Biko murdered in 1977, you had the, you know, the, the UDF forming in the 1980s, the protest, the state of emergency, 85, 86. How did that stuff impinge on you, if at all, during your, your upbringing, your adolescence? Well, not at all. Firstly, um, I mean, I, we were isolated from the outside world, willingly so, um, by choice. 
we weren't really aware of, I wasn't aware as a child of what was happening in my own country because I was protected in a way and um, happily so. There was no threat to my immediate environment so I, politically I wasn't aware of, of, of what was happening and what apartheid really was about. Um, we all really lived as Afrikaners, we lived apartheid uh, in, in, in those days and we were happy to do so. Mm. Now you wrote at the beginning of your book that you came from a in quotes, poor family, but it wouldn't be sort of poor certainly by general South African terms. Like, for example, you had a live-in housekeeper, you had a pool um, in South Africa. I mean, I always maintain that, that white South Africans under apartheid probably had the finest material quality of life of True. anyone on the planet. I think um, my parents were poor at first, but mm. then obviously, you know, we acquired certain things because um, in, in the economy in South Africa, being white, we were privileged to certain things, and it was easier accessible because we were white. Mm. Um, but yes, we were we were very, I think, a middle class family, um, more or less. Mm. Um, but definitely, we didn't live in the rich side of town, although we had a swimming pool. Yeah. <laughs> um, and. Um, I mean, your parents, I imagine, like so many people that I've met in South Africa, um, Africaners and just white South Africans generally, just sort of would have reflexively voted for the National Party and in favour of apartheid without really giving it a second thought. True, and we were protecting white supremacy, really, um, by doing that. I'm saying we, when I voted, I mean, I voted even more conservative than my parents because I thought it's the right thing to do. Um, but yes, we, the, the, the rules of apartheid were really entrenched on us um, by sc through school, through churches, and society in general. Right. Um, we didn't go beyond the borders of apartheid. Um, we never asked the right questions. And um, as I say, you know, we were happily living apartheid. Hmm. You said you voted even more... Yeah, yeah, it's in the book. You're talking um, about the referendum. <laughs> yes, well, right. my, my, the, fir the first um, election and the referendum, um, I voted for the Conservative Party, not even the Nationalist in, Party. In 89? That's right. Um, you voted for the Conservative Party? Yes, yes. And um, for the well, Conservative Party, you know, in Britain is one thing. <laughs> the Conservative Party in 1989 it's, it's right, in South Africa was, was, you know, it was kind of to the, you know, marginally to the left of Attila the Hun. That's correct. That's correct. <laughs> and maybe I'm being a bit unfair to Attila the Hun. Um, and then in the referendum, I voted no, and I voted against the abolition yeah, and, of and in the referendum, which was in 1990. Ninety-two, two, yes. two yes. which was a big. It was. I mean, I, I was there. I remember. Well, I was there for the eighty-nine election too, when you voted for the man known as Doctor No, Doctor Trunick, who was all for no to any kind Correct. of political movement. Mm. Um, the referendum was something that F. W. De Klerk called a whites-only referendum, in which he sought the support of um, the white population for you know, negotiating with the ANC. Mm. And astonishingly, the vast majority of white South Africans, about two-thirds, voted in favour of negotiations, and you were among the third who voted against, against it. I didn't know it was that bad, Zelda. <laughs> yes, it was. <laughs> but you, you have to, you know what I've come to realise is you have to reconcile with your past. You have to admit these things sure. to be able to make the sure. choice to change. No, and don't you find, just to get off sort of a little bit my, my kind of schedule of things to talk about, don't you find that an awful lot of white South Africans 
um, just sort of you know pretend that that past didn't happen, and you know what me moi you know no absolutely and denying the racism. I mean, at first people were shocked when they started reading the book and they read in there that I admitted to being a race, racist by the age of 13. But what else? You know, how do I deny that? Because I, it wasn't any different. Mm. Tell me about your first encounter with Nelson Mandela. Maybe just sort of scene set a little bit. I mean, you, 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 you applied for a job and just by... I mean, it is amazing looking back on one's life, how these little fateful things happen. Mm. I mean, how so easily mm. your life could have gone in a completely different direction. Mm. But mm. by whatever series of circumstances, you ended up working in the presidential office in 1994 on the year when Mandela came to power. Um, tell me a little bit about, about how you got into that. And then chiefly tell me about your, your first encounter with Mandela as the great racist who voted for the far-right <laughs> party and the gates negotiations. That's why I invited you. That's why now I remember. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, it was really, I was in, in, in the president's office um, busy doing an interview um, at the human resource department and uh, the door flung open and this very flamboyant black lady dressed in a satin, colorful shirt came into the office and um, she said, um, I need a typist and I need her right now. And I thought, who's this? And after she left, they told me this is actually the president's private secretary, Mary Cladana. And um, she wanted a typist. She needed support immediately. And she actually said, I don't care if she's black or white. And she didn't know that I was there for, for an interview as a, for a typist position. Mm. And uh, they called me about two hours after the interview. And they said, would you, would you want to work in the president's office? And I said, is it in the union buildings? And they said, yes, because I was concerned with my logistical situation. <laughs> uh, I needed a job closer to my parents' house. And that was really it. Right. And they said, yes, yes. Um, the that's union buildings, like that. that's where the president's office is. <laughs> but, but it's fantastic how these little tiny uh, chance absolutely, things absolutely. which just shape the whole of the rest of your life. It's terrifying almost. And you don't recognize them now. You don't hmm. you at not, that not point. No. And then um, I said yes of course I'd be interested. Do I do sessional duty because I also had my eye on, on in some independence so traveling to Cape Town for six months and or living in Cape Town mm. away from my parents for six months. Right. And um, they said yes all of that and I said well then I'm yours. Right, so, so your your criteria for deciding to go for this job were just entirely sort of personal career. There wasn't a hint of a sort of political thought nothing, in your mind nothing. in this point. I didn't at that point even think that I would ever meet Nelson Mandela. Mm. Not at all. Um, he was, you know, the president. How would I, a typist, how does a typist get in touch or in contact with the president? Right. So how did the typist. And then about two weeks, yeah, two weeks later, I was delivering a note in Mary's office to Mary's office, and this crowd of people came walking out of her office, and suddenly I noticed, okay, the man is right in front of me. It's surrounded by bodyguards, and you don't know. I, I thought, should I turn around and walk away? What should I do? And he extended his hand to me. And um, what do you do? I'm not sure how to greet him. And then at that point, I said, um, good morning, Mr. Mandela, which is the title of the book and really the time, you know, the, the, the turning point in my life. Um, I extended my hand, not sure whether I'm supposed to greet this man. This is the man that I was brought up to fear, um, to be afraid of. This, this was the enemy. Just a, a slight parenthesis also, um, before you continue with the story, that particular story. When Mandela was released in February the 11th, 1990... It's the first time I, I heard mean, his a, a name. A hell of a lot of... First time you heard his name, mm -hmm. okay. 
an awful lot of white people, I was there at the time, we just thought, you know, the government, F.W. de Klerk, they've gone out of their, their minds. So, mm. I mean, you know, Mandela was, white people had been programmed to regard Nelson Mandela as a kind of South African version of Osama bin Laden, mm. only worse because he was actually inside. So anyway, so, yeah. so that, that was the con. And, and, and your father said to you... Or your, when the you terrorist said, is being released. So he was thought, I, I mean... Even then, starting in the president's office, I didn't know my own country's history. And this was still the enemy that presented himself in front of me, now extending the hand. Right. And um, he started conversing with me, and I said, um, excuse me, Mr. President, because I didn't understand him. I, you know, I couldn't figure out, what is this man saying to me? And I'm shaking his hand, and he repeated himself, and only when he repeated himself did I realize that he was actually speaking to me in Afrikaans. Right. So I felt like an idiot, um, <laughs> not understanding my own language, and it wasn't because he didn't speak Afrikaans properly, it was because I was so shocked. Right. This is the last thing you expect of the man you were brought up to believe is the enemy. Right. And I just you know, become very, became very emotional. I just started crying, <laughs> and um, he asked about my family, and you could see, I could see he was visibly old. I could see um, the wrinkles on his face, but he had a very, you had a kindness in his eyes, and he, the, the smile, his smile was infectious, and you know, it just, it just um, lit up my heart. And then um, he conversed with me, and I was crying. I was full on sobbing. And um, he put his other hand on my shoulder and he said, calm down, calm down, you are overreacting. <laughs> I felt guilty, I felt responsible for sending this man to prison. Um, you know, I, I took the blame on me Did you, personally. At, at that moment, do you think you were processing that? Was yes, that, yes, yeah. yes. Why am I afraid of this man? He's holding my hand, he doesn't want to let go, he's speaking to me in my own language. And only later years did I realize, and he repeated it, he said, when you speak to a person, you speak to his head. When you speak to a person in his language, you speak to his heart. Mm. Mm. Um, and that's it. That was really, he destroyed my defenses immediately by just speaking to me in my own language. Mm. And I went home and I told my parents, I'm, I met the president today. And my father, very typical to their characters, my father said, oh, yeah, yeah, good. He was... Pull, pull the he, other one. No, yeah, he was, he, he was more excited today. I told him I met Constant Fouillon than, <laughs> <laughs> um, than when I met Nelson Mandela. And my mother said, my, my child, that's wonderful. How easy, you know, she was a bit more inquisitive. It's very um, true to their characters, yeah. Yeah. Constant Fillion was the far right wing Afrikaans general for yes, those of you. Yeah. That's the one that your that I voted for, actually. Yeah. That you voted for, kind yeah. of, yeah, exactly. Okay, so there you were, you were you were working there um in, in the president's office. And um then as as I as I recall from the book, and I think from conversations we've had before, there was one sort of very important moment, which was when Mandela asked you to accompany him on a trip to Japan. And Japan, which is a pretty distant sort of place, was actually your first country outside South Africa in your life. Mm, yes, I never... Okay. Now, tell, even, tell me how you reacted upon being informed <laughs> that you were going to go to thank Japan. Thank you. <coughs> Love. Finish. <laughs> I'm laughing already. Yes. <clears throat> He called me into his office and the, the president asked you to sit down. You're, you are nervous because, you know, you think, did I tell any secrets to anyone? What's happening? You know, why am I in trouble? So he said to me, please sit down. And I sat down and he said, um, I want you to come to Japan with me. And I thought, wow, this is very inappropriate. <laughs> Uh, 
And I said, um, the only thing I could think of to say, because now I need to stop the situation, what do you do? You know, I'm 24 years of age, so I need to stop this. And I said to him, um, I'm very sorry, Mr. President, but unfortunately I don't have money to go to Japan right now. <laughs> And he laughed out loud, and then um, he composed himself because he saw that I was shocked by his <laughs> laughter. And he composed himself, and he said, no, 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 I want you to accompany me on a state visit to Japan. And that was some critical information he left out. <laughs> and he said, you don't need money. You need to speak to foreign affairs. They'll tell you what the procedures are. And speak to Professor Jake Scherville, because he will direct you and, and tell you what to do, uh, which I then did. And I found myself in Tokyo two months later, <laughs> the first time I ever left South Africa was to go to Tokyo. And um, we went to the Emperor's Palace to be, uh, you know, the, what they do on state visits. And uh, we got introduced to the Emperor. And when I looked back, you know, you, you, you get introduced from the most junior, senior person to the most junior person. So I was right at the back, the typist. And... Um, when I looked back at the receiving line, I realized, and it really dawned on me the first time, that the delegation was completely representative of the South African population, and I was being the Afrikaner. The Rainbow and Nation was there. The Rainbow Nation was there. Hmm. And that was amazing to, to come to that realization, even at the age of, you know, 25. It's so you, you were making a bit of progress on that. Yeah, a little bit, slowly, <laughs> <laughs> slowly. Um, but so that, yeah, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that because that was the next thing I wanted to raise with you. Um, I mean, at one level, you could see it as Mandela bringing along the token white woman. Um, he was using you, you know, as a sort of political instrument. He saw, I'm sure he saw a value in you for your extraordinary <laughs> merits as a hard worker and all the rest of it. Thank you. But, um, <laughs> but. But there was that sense. I mean, talk to me a little bit more about that. I mean, there's a... Yes, well, you know, you, you, when someone puts that challenge to you or when, when someone identifies you to represent the community and that person is Nelson Mandela, what do you do with it? Do you walk away? No, no. Um, you know, if you were given that opportunity, you would have probably done a much better job than me. But, but my point is, I mean, I think what this shows, as so many other things about Nelson Mandela's life is that he had a genius for the symbolism. He had a sense of how to present a sort of a picture, a tableau, that reached people's hearts in a way that mere words and rhetoric didn't. Absolutely. And I think that was his genius. You know, that was what the man was all about. It was strategy to me. Having mm. watched him over 19 years, mm. there was nothing in his life without strategy. Mm. And these small things just all work together um, to contribute to the bigger plan of, of unity and reconciliation. Mm. And, um, you know, people made uh, some of these incidents were, were really so were unnoticed at the time, I would say. Mm. Um, but now, looking back, you, 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 you consider them as the big things. I mean, look at the rugby jersey. I mean, you wrote a book and a movie about that. Mm. Mm. Uh, it was such a simple act of just putting on a rugby jersey and look what, it's, what he did for the country. The, the Absolutely. Colossal repercussions. Mm -hmm. yeah. I mean, you just made that point that he's always thinking strategically, and I think this is... Um, an important point that I always try to stress when I talk to people about Mandela is that on the one hand, there's the sort of classic, almost cliched view of him, which is not incorrect as an extraordinarily generous person who came out of prison without bitterness and all these things that you hear over and over and over again, which are, which are true. But simultaneously, he was extraordinarily pragmatic 
and calculating. And, and if you fail to take into account, you know, if you get sort of swamped by all the, the usual sort of fine words expressed about him, about his generosity, his Christ-like whatever, it's important to bear in mind, isn't it, that he was just such a deliberate, calculating, utterly political animal. That's it. Yeah, I mean, you, you summarize it 100%. There was nothing non-political in his life, almost. Mm. Um, always doing the right thing, making the right choices. He was like the true north on a compass. You know, he knew uh, we would all think, you know, this is the right direction, and he would just you know, adjust it a bit and know mm. politically what would work best. One thing, um, I, I once interviewed the person who was his best friend, and you've got a very moving scene in the book when you describe when you came along and you told him that his best friend had died, Walter Sisulu. Mm. He was the person who recruited him into politics in the 1940s, who he spent about 25 years in prison with. Um, I'm sure you, you, you've, you've heard this a thousand times, but Mandela, after he came out of prison and they were all out there and there were significant leaders, when Sisulu was around, he would sometimes say, you know, this man Sisulu, if only I'd never met him, I would have avoided so much trouble in my life. Yes. He's the guy who recruited yeah. him. But anyway, I, I interviewed Walter Sisulu um, on his birthday, I think 80th birthday. And, and I said to him, Mr. Sisulu, what, is, what have you been fighting for all your life? He was, he'd been in the struggle way beyond, you know, way before Mandela, mm-hmm. 10 more That's years right. before. And, um, and I said, what, what, has, what have you been fighting for all your life? And I expected a long-winded, complicated answer. And he gave me a very, very tiny little short answer. And he said, I've been fighting, I've been battling for ordinary respect. Dignity. Just, you know, not, not extra special respect or you know, abasement, but, but respect. And I think that that's a very, very important part, you know, maybe the key thought with Nelson Mandela. And, and the reason I just thought of that was I just saw my, my notes here is just one thing to which he attached immense importance was never being late, which he saw as a sort of symptom of respect. Tell me a bit about, about that, because if there's one thing you would have known is about mm. his obsession with... Totally, totally obsessed with, with, with discipline and um, being punctual and showing another person a, a, a respect for another person by being on time. Um, they would get cross when people... Very, very angry, yes. It was, I think, in 1995, more or less. Um, my editor is here, so she can tell us the dates. <laughs> um, I think it was 1995. I was supposed to um, fly to, to Cape Town with him and in the presidential plane. And usually the plane took off at 6 o'clock on a Wednesday morning to be in time for cabinet at 8 o'clock or half past 8 in Cape Town. And this particular morning, it was in the winter, and I thought, you know what, he never arrives before half past, half past five in the morning, so I'll, I'll push it a bit, five minutes is not going to make a difference. And as I drove around the corner at the airport, my phone rang, and it was Pax Mankaglana, the late Pax Mankaglana, and Pax said, Sissy, where are you? You are in trouble. I said, oh, I'm around the corner, I'll be there in a minute. He says, the president is waiting for you. As I drove around the corner, the plane was already on the tarmac, the, the door was closed, and Box tried to stop the plane to get me, you know, to, 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 to um, get me onto the plane. They opened the door, took my suitcase, and I walked in, and the president was already seated, strapped in, feet up in the air, reading his newspapers, and I thought, let me just lift the mood a bit and be cheerful, and I said, good morning, Mr. President. And he didn't look at me. He didn't make eye contact. Wow. He looked at his paper and he wow. said, that is the last time you were ever late. And I promise you, that was the last time I was ever late. <laughs> I'm sure. Wasn't there some story about he was, that Mugabe was late for something? That's right. That's tell, me, right. tell us that story. Yes. 
um, no, no surprises there. Um, it was we, we attended a SADC meeting, I think, in 1997 in Mauritius, and Madiba was chair, chairing SADC at that point. Um, and another head of state was uh, was busy, you know, delivering a speech or something. And President Mugabe wasn't present. And about an hour later, President Mugabe and his entourage disrupted proceedings, and they entered, and he took his seat. And Madiba waited for him to sit, and then he said to the head of state, excuse me, Mr. President, can I say something? And then he launched. And, you know, you get that, you, I, I got nervous because he didn't mention President Mugabe's name once. Uh-huh. But he said, because you are a president doesn't mean that your time is more important than anyone else. We only got a, we each got a, 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 a certain amount of time on earth, and your time is not more important. No position. Um, if you are not punctual, it means that you don't respect other people for 20 minutes. And then Whoa. he launched into, into, into a speech, and then it went quiet, and the other president continued, and then about half an hour later, President Mugabe got up and left. <laughs> and um, that was the last time I really saw any interaction, or I'm aware of any interaction between the two of them. There's um, one thing you, you mentioned in the book about one lesson which you said was very important for you, um, which I think probably went to the, to the core of his political tactics. Um, the importance and value of disarming the enemy. Tell me about that. And how did he expand on it and maybe give us an example of how he did it. Mm. Um, Well, it speaks to also rugby and the role of rugby in South Africa. Um, When Dr. Louis Light took the president to court after the president decided to uh, establish a commission of inquiry into... Let me just explain. Louis Light, for those who don't know, he was the head of the rugby union Union, in South Africa. That's right, which is a private body. he was actually sitting next to Mandela in the famous 1995 Rugby World Cup final. You would know, yes, you would know. And in fact, it was Mandela who Mr. Mandela, who told me when I interviewed him for my book that when the final whistle went, he found himself locked in this embrace of love with Louis Late, mm. who was a sort of definitive kind of racist, Africana, whatever, and Mandela was yes. laughing his head off as he told me that story. Anyway, mm. so pick it up. So Louis And Lake. then Louis Late, after all of that, mm. Louis, uh, the, uh, the president actually establishes a commission of inquiry into rugby affairs because there was... Um, uh, uh, um, allegations of nepotism and so on. So this commission is established and then Dr. Light decides to challenge the president's right to establish a commission into uh, into rugby affairs, which is a private body. We went to court and the president, his advisor said, no, 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 Mr. President, you don't have to go to court um, yourself. We'll, as your advisors and your legal representative, we'll deal with it. We'll, you don't have to um, be put in the witness stand whatever and, and um, he insisted he said I want to go and defend my decision myself so we ended up going to court and the first day we walked in Madiba went right up or the president went right up to Dr. Light's lawyers and you know I was like the little chihuahua at the back don't do that it's the enemy don't greet them <laughs> um, and I was angry at him I really thought at first maybe he mistook them for some for his own lawyers or something but you don't you just don't do that these people had the audacity to challenge him as a president. Mm. And um, at tea time, I said to him, um, why did you do that? And he said, oh, no, 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 no. The way you approach a person will determine how that person treats you. Never allow the enemy to determine the grounds for battle. Mm. 
And, you know, it took me time and it took me years, actually, to really grasp that and to mm. apply it in my own life. And when I tried it, it actually works. And we lost the commission or we lost the court case. We, meaning, you know, the presidency lost the court mm. case, but it was later overturned by the appeals court. Mm. Um, but just by doing that, you know, people, he said he felt that we had already won the emotional battle halfway. Mm. And he was right. I mean, these people were were really baffled by the fact that they, ch- they challenged the president, yet he still comes to them and he shakes hands with them, mm. first of all. Mm. And generally, in terms of the big picture, that is what Mandela did with your people. Absolutely. He disarmed. I mean, there, there were, even when he came to power, there, were still, there was still a significant nucleus of people who were agitating for you know, what they call it, the second Boer freedom struggle, which meant a kind of terrorist onslaught against the new democracy. And he disarmed those people. Absolutely. I, even in the presidency, um, just after he, he, he came into power, he called the entire presidential stuff and he said to people, mm. you don't have to leave. Mm. If you want, if you're interested in building this new country, we need your expertise. And he allayed fears completely and he disarmed people. And, uh, you know, as a result, we had a great team because we kept all the experts. They stayed and they were, they were willing to work with the new government. Mm. Tell me about your trip to Saudi Arabia, or trips. Which one? Okay, the one that you find more... I mean, there was this particular encounter you had with Prince Bandar. Oh, yes. Um, but I'll let State you choose. Visit. I mean, it, just, it was just quite a, quite a lot of stuff went on in Saudi Arabia, and quite an eye-opener for a, for a, for a girl with any There's background. There's actually someone here in the audience that worked for Prince Bandar that I met through him, but yeah... Um, we were in Saudi Arabia on a state visit, actually, and um, we were really having difficulties trying just to confirm a program. And it's very, mm. very uh, um, unconventional that a head of state would leave his own country without even having a program of what is expected of him when he arrives in the country. So John Reinders, the chief of protocol, and, and, and myself, we were fighting in the protocol Did office. you go ahead of Mandela to South Yes, we, yeah, we went right. in advance to prepare now for the visit and so on. And John Reinders and I we were really having difficulties with the Saudi protocol people. And what you do not do in Saudi as a, as a, as a woman, you don't slam your fist on the table and threaten the Saudis, but I did. <laughs> um, because, I, you know, you really, I, I, said to, I said to the gentleman, this is Nelson Mandela, you know, this is our president. We cannot expect him to arrive in a country and not know what is expected of him. He, he wants us to be prepared. Mm. And, you know, the, unfortunately, it was difficult to, 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 to deal with uh, the difference in culture and so on. But I really, you know, I was, I was very passionately <laughs> trying to protect my boss. And um, this man, I mean, they lost their tempers more than once. And John said to me, John Reinders said, no, calm down, calm down. I think you've made your point. We can't push this any further. And after 2 o'clock in the morning, we eventually got a program. By then, the president was already on his way on a state visit. Mm. And then the next morning, um, we were getting ready to leave for the airport. And uh, after that meeting that night, no one spoke to me. It was like, you know, I had... Um, I've some disease. I've broken every single rule. I threatened men. I, yeah. you know, I slammed my fist. I lost my temper. Everything. And then um, the next morning, no one would speak to me. They wouldn't even bring me food. You know, I thought, oh, well, live with yourself. <laughs> I got the program. And then um, 
eventually the entire palace went silent and they said there's a prince about to arrive and there's like 2,000 princes in Saudi so you never know they don't announce, they don't say who it is they just say a prince is about to arrive so I look at things and of course I'm dressed in my in my abaya in my proper Saudi outfit you know not showing anything and (laughs) my clothing and so on and this Prince arrives and it's Prince Bandar, Madiba's good friend, um, Prince Bandar bin Sultan Abdulaziz, someone here can give us the name, yeah. Um, and this man walks right up to me, oh Zelda, and he kisses me. And it is something you do not do in Saudi you Arabia. You, you, don't kiss, that, you get executed for that. You don't kiss a woman, especially an unmarried woman. And um, for, for him, you know, it was just, he's well, how are you? And we went to a lounge and we had tea and he asked, are you happy? Is everything okay? And after that, everyone spoke to me, of course, right, of course. you know, because I was kissed by a prince. Wow, <laughs> Tell me one sense that one gets from reading your, your book is that there's a, there's a kind of undertow, you know, the, the, your book is very busy and you're traveling to so many places and meeting so many people and there's so many lovely anecdotes, but there's a kind of undertow of loneliness in, in Nelson Mandela. In Nelson Mandela. Mm. Um, it just, it's this man, you know, I think it was, it was Anthony Sampson. Do you remember Anthony Sampson, mm-hmm. who was his, you know, his friend and his authorized biographer? Oh, said that, yeah. you know, I remember him remarking to me once the irony that he was simultaneously the most famous man in the world and one of the loneliest. Absolutely. Tell me a bit about that. No, absolutely. And I think, um, you know, he gave so much of himself to mm-hmm. the world that um, the private time was really, you know, he tried to isolate almost the, his feelings himself. Mm-hmm. And it's only when Mrs. Marshall entered our lives that really mm-hmm. that started changing. Uh, I would often go to his house in, 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 in Johannesburg, and many of my colleagues will uh, agree uh, with that. You, you got to the house, and he was having dinner or lunch by himself, and mm-hmm. it was lonely. You know, it was somber in the house. Um, there wasn't much happening. It was there was no music or flowers or mm-hmm. light. It was a, it was a very somber atmosphere. And only when Mrs. Michelle entered our lives did things really change. You know, mm. the family came together, and there were children laughing in the background. There was, it, was a, it was a more relaxed atmosphere. Mm. Um, so she really brought about the change and changed that loneliness for him. Mm. There's a lovely part here in the book um, when you sort of introduce Mrs. Michelle. Um, and you say, at first I thought Mrs. Michelle was just asserting her position as wife in the president's life, and it felt as if a expectations of us were too high, but then one noticed how she made the president smile. And this is the bit. She awakened his senses again. She allowed him to live. She made him dance and see the beauty in flowers, appreciate good music, and see the wonder in every sunset and every sunrise. Um, I mean, and it's sort of, it's kind of sad. It is sad that this, these simple little basic pleasures of enjoying a sunset should have been new to him and smelling, pausing to smell the flowers. It was Mrs. Michelle who brought that Absolutely. into his life. Absolutely, because he was that political animal that you described earlier. Mm. Everything was about politics, you know, mm. even a sunset would be about, about politics. Yes. Um, but she brought about that change, you know. Uh, whenever we traveled with her, things were much easier because she would say, Madiba, let's go outside and watch the sunset. Madiba, let's try the Italian food, which he wouldn't do. He would want his South African food when we traveled by 
by ourselves. You know, it was it was difficult with things like that. But when she was there, he risked a bit, uh, risked mm. a bit more. Um, so she 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 opened up a life for him that he that, that, that uh, and the small things that we took that we take um, mm. advantage of or take yeah take pleasure in yeah 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 yeah. yeah. Now, when he came out of prison in his first rather dull speech, by the way, if you forgive me saying so. Um, in Cape Town on the day he was released, but he, he said he, he made his big statement that you know he was going to be a servant of the people, mm-hmm. and it's almost as if he took it too damn literally. I mean, he just became mm-hmm. you know he sort of subordinated that self who enjoys smelling the flowers and seeing the sunsets. He kind of just you know, banished that one, kind of almost kind of a apartheid, you know, of his own mind, putting that to one side and converting himself into this. 100% servant Because of his, the self, selfless nature of the person, you know, he, I think he actually woke up every morning thinking, what can I change in the world today? How mm. can I change someone's world today? Mm. It was never about the self. Mm. And therefore, these simple things passed him by. Mm. Until Mrs. Michelle came along. There's one um, really touching little story about him, I think it was in Mauritius, and he steps into the sea. Mm. I mean, something which is just so sort of banal and everyday for so many of us, and yet and the tell, pleasure, tell the pleasure. Tell I me, tell, just describe that, that that scene and what was going. Yeah, on. so um, he was good friend Salkers and extended this invitation to host him in Mauritius on a, the, the first holiday, proper holiday that he really had. And uh, we arrive um, in Mauritius, and after a few days watching the sea, Madiba actually announced that, you know, maybe I should go into the water. But he was already unstable on his feet by then, so um, the security decided to actually put a chair in the water so that he could sit and allow the, 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 uh, the waves to break over his feet. And the pleasure on that man's face, you know, something so simple, mm. but watching him just really enjoying the motion of the water covering his feet, it was just unbelievable to watch. And, um, yeah, I write in the book, I subsequently, by just witnessing that and the, the, the enormous pleasure that brought to him, um, I wrote to Salkers and I said to him, you added years to Madiba's life, you have no idea. Um, it's these small things, you know, we take for granted. But it's also, I mean, it's a very, very poignant image, Mandela on a chair on the seashore with the sea lapping over his ankles. In total silence, um, I must say to you, it was, it was a very, very powerful moment. And, but also quite sad because it just brought home the whole dimension of life that we take for granted that he'd sort of denied himself or had been denied, of course, by prison too. Yes, first of all by prison and then himself. I don't think he actually maybe thought that he was... Um, priv- he should be privileged to these ordinary pleasures. It, mm. it, passed, it really passed him by. Mm. Tell me about his relationship with Queen Elizabeth, <laughs> this one, who lives here. <laughs> it was, yeah, it was a really a strange relationship. Not strange, mm. meaning it was a warm relationship. Mm. But he also, you know, Madiba was, he was, um, he called her Elizabeth, he called mm. her on her first name, and Mrs. Michelle wondered to her. Um, Mrs. Michelle one day said to, said to him, Madiba, you can't call her Elizabeth. And he said, why not? She calls me Nelson. 
Um, I mean, the thing is that there's probably a law somewhere saying that it's a treasonable offence to call probably. on Elizabeth. I mean, probably still today you get taken to the But, power. you know, also, I, I mean, I could see the look on her face whenever he greeted her. She was so happy to see mm. him. They really had a warm relationship. And then at one point um, in these later years, when at some point we, we came to London and we visited <coughs> Buckingham Palace, and when he walked up to her, he said to her, Oh, Elizabeth, you've lost weight. I mean... <laughs> Not something everyone gets to tell the Queen of yeah. England, you know. Yeah. Um, and she laughed, you know, she enjoyed it. Yeah. Um, th- that was Madiba, and always charming, always finding something, you know, to charm a woman uh, off her feet, really. And he did no different with the Queen. And no different with the Queen. He just couldn't help himself being so, a charmer. Exactly. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I've heard a couple of, of, of his stories with the Queen, too, about how he met her once, you know, after they'd known each other for a while, and... and and he said to us, in a similar spirit to, you know, you've lost weight, <laughs> he said, um, this is what do you do to, to look to stay so young? Mm-hmm. And apparently the Queen sort of touched her hair and said, oh, really, do you really think so, Nelson? <laughs> <laughs> yes. it's, it's astonishing. I mean, I, I, uh, and, and I doubt very much there's anyone in the world with a possible, possible exception of the Duke of Edinburgh who actually dares to call her Elizabeth. I mean, it's just... Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. But, he, you know, Madiba was so... Uh, he was so comfortable with himself and confident and comfortable mm. in his own skin that, you know, and innocent in a way, you know. He, he, mm. There was never any ill intent and he, it, it wasn't meant in a disrespectful way. Mm. It was just really who the person, you know, just dealing with what is in front of you. That's one of his, his, his great characteristics. But I think yes. that Mandela... Mandela, had, he had a, na- a natural royalty... Of demeanor, he was like a sort of natural-born king. And yes, yes. Now he reminded us that he was born into blo- uh, right. the bloodline of royals right, in, in, exactly. in South Africa. And I think so. the queen must have seen there's that sort of natural majesty about him. Which State, I yes, yes, mm. I, I, I agree with you definitely. Mm. Um, there's very little mention in your book of Winnie Mandela. Um, was she? You know, I know you don't like people saying this, but I, I doubt very much whether there was anyone in the last 19 years of Nelson Mandela's life who spent more time with him in his waking moments than, than you. And you, 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 you mentioned Winnie Mandela very little in the book. Was she really very, very absent during that time? They I mean, were they'd already, they'd they, already separated. And then they, they were divorced, yes. Yeah, hmm. So... Um... <laughs> Okay, let me not make that comment about you. Um, <laughs> not, not everyone has got a good relationship with their ex-wife and so on. So, um, no, they were divorced, so she, wasn't, she really wasn't part of my life because I worked for him. I was there in a professional way. I was associated with him. It wasn't a, a, really, I wasn't involved in his private no. life. So, um, so even professionally, there was less contact with, 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 with family and mm. therefore with, with his um, ex-wife. Mm. Um, a topical subject, um, Tony Blair, who, as some of you would have noticed, has been writing articles in the Financial Times and elsewhere um, defending his, his position on, on Iraq and the Iraq War in 2003. Um, Nelson Mandela, was, he was all, he'd already left the presidency four years earlier, but he was very outspoken on that subject mm. at the time of the war, very, very strongly against it. And, yeah, and, and, and describing Tony Blair, this is why I, I pick it up as 
the Ministry of Foreign Affairs for, for America, yes. according to your book. Ouch, yeah. Ouch, exactly. Tell me a bit about that. What, what is your recollection of him at that time when the Iraq war was sort of about? He was very, very disturbed about it because um, he felt that both Britain and America didn't recognize um, the United Nations in all of this, um, paid no attention to them. And um, so he was very critical and outspoken about it, um, which I think, you know, he, had, he felt he had a moral conscience to, <coughs> conscience to, to speak out about it, mm. even in retirement. And then he had a sort of slightly prickly encounter, I think, that you describe in the book with um, George W. Bush. Yes, years later, you know, the, the, the basis of Madiba's relationship with, relationships with anyone was really based on respect. You know, we can have vast differences, but there's no reason why we should disrespect one another, even if he had disagreement with people or they argued, for that matter. Mm. So... Um, I think it was 2008, 2006, we went to America, um, paid a courtesy call to President George Bush, and to show the world, you know, that despite our differences, despite him speaking out of, uh, against the war in Iraq, he was still, he had respect for the President of the United States, and he was paying a courtesy call to him. Mm. And then President Bush was a bit less tolerant than I would have, than I would have preferred him to be, and mm. he kept on saying Madiba was aging very fast at that point, so he was repeating himself. <clears throat> and um, as he repeated himself, President Bush kept on saying, Mr. President, we have to finish. The media is waiting for, for, for us. And I just felt, I, you know, I couldn't rescue, I couldn't do anything for Madiba, and I felt powerless. And I was, I was to be honest, it's, in my opinion, I was disgusted. Because I really felt that he didn't have um, tolerance with Madiba's aging process, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. um, it was not as important to go and appear in front of the media as it was really for him to hear out what Madiba had to say. Um, to his defense, as I say in the book, America did increase its aid uh, to, to Africa after that, but still, you know, the personal interaction, I wasn't happy with it that day. Mm -hmm. Another person who has been somewhat controversial on this. Little Island, anyway, of late, um, apart from Tony Blair, is um, Jeremy Clarkson. There was... Um, sure. Mm. Yeah. Um, you all know who Jeremy Clarkson is? Um, Jeremy Clarkson. Tell me about Jeremy Clarkson's... I, mean, I remember reading... Jeremy Clarkson wrote an article, I think, in the Sunday Times about his encounter with, with Nelson Mandela. Can you remember I, what he said? Yes. And I remember, I remember roughly, but I remember thinking... What on earth were the people around Nelson Mandela doing, allowing this interview to happen in the first place? Absolutely. Um, but tell me what your recollection is about that. And there was a complete misunderstanding, and it was just a horrible incident. No, it was. Um, we, we all make mistakes, and that was a very expensive mistake on our side. Um, we had agreed to partner with, with Top Gear. Um, the foundation was supposed to be the beneficiary of a fundraiser that Top Gear was having in South Africa. And where the confusion really came in was that Madiba thought, or we thought, that Jeremy Clarkson wanted to see Madiba. And Jeremy Clarkson was told that Madiba wanted to see him, which never happened. So it was, it, it, it was a mess from the beginning. Um, then they arrived at the office. And the first words he said, Jeremy Clarkson said to Madiba was, have you ever had a lap dance? 
Um, I mean, which is totally, totally inappropriate. Well, beyond imagination. You know, really. uh, how do you expect a 90-year-old to know what a lap dance is? Somebody was, you know, he was shocked and he looked at me and, and, you know, to ask me almost with his eyes, rescue me. What am I supposed to do? So, I, I mean, I was very angry. And um, he sat down and uh, they started conversing a bit, but not, you know, Mariba was already uneasy uh, because of that. And Jeremy Clarkson said to him, so have you been, uh, have you, do you come to the office uh, regularly? And Madiba said, forgetting that he actually saw that he was at the office the previous day. And he said, um, oh no, this is the first time that I've been to the office this year. And I said, no, 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 Kulu, remember you, you actually, you were here yesterday. Remember we saw Neil Armstrong? And he looked at me, I said, remember Neil Armstrong that, you know, shared his experiences of going to the moon and so on, because they had a great meeting and they could relate to one another this extraordinary experiences and they were both elderly men and well well respected both of them and they they really had a great conversation. So I reminded Madiba and I said, can you remember you saw him yesterday? And he said, oh yes, yes, I remember. That was the end of the conversation. There was nothing else. He didn't have anything to say to them. They didn't converse with him any longer. So there was dead silence. And then Madiba, he's got a great sense of humor. And because this man asked him about the lap dance, he threw it back and he said, have you ever been to the moon? (laughs) (laughs) And of course, Jeremy Clarkson then wrote in his... And he completely misinterpreted it. I mean, completely lacked a sense of humor. The sort of guy who thinks he's got a great sense of humor himself. Yes, and then then of course he wrote in his his column, he wrote that um, Madiba confused him with Neil Armstrong, which right. was not the case. And he missed yeah. the point completely missed the and point just presented completely. him as a sort of doddering. Yeah, yeah. And from there, my name of the Rottweiler, because <laughs> you can imagine. Yeah, the Rottweiler. Is that where it began? Mm. Okay. No, well, actually before that, but yeah, I was... Yeah, no, exactly. We always call them. We all called you the Rottweiler. And mm. Behind your back, we still do. I, and, I mean, this, one of the stories that didn't make the book was how I tried to keep you away. Huh. <laughs> really? Now it comes out in public, you know, finally. Yeah. Okay, well, we'll talk about that later on. Um, one final thing before we open it up to questions. Um, the last, I don't know, 5% of the book, which is the period when Nelson Mandela really enters his final decline um, and then dies, uh, you talk about poison within the family, the Mandela family, leaking out. And there's some quite... Um, strong stuff there, um, in particular regarding Nelson Mandela's oldest daughter. And I couldn't help thinking, in a book which generally has a sort of a, a delightful sort of sweetness of tone and is charming all the way through um, and loving, how towards the end there's a sort of slight note of bitterness that seems to creep in. Um, on your part regarding that. Um. Yes, I, I, I can understand that, you, that, that that is your opinion, which is not completely incorrect. Um, I was, people would know that I was responsible, first of all, for relationships. You know, people, Madiba met so many people over the years. He maintained friendships. People knew that I was the go-to person. Suddenly at the funeral, I found myself not being able to get these people access to the funeral. 
Um, I have not, I've spent more time in the last couple of months explaining to people, I'm sorry you couldn't get to the funeral because it was completely out of my hands. So I had to address that first of all in the book and um, I cannot lie or hide and just end the book by saying I'm sorry you know you didn't go to the funeral, good luck for the rest of your life. Um, I really had to explain myself. First of all, secondly, um, people all asked me, we didn't see you at the burial, where were you? I had to address that. Unfortunately, it deals with, uh, with particular incidents that's, 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 um, that's less <coughs> what pleasant, <laughs> shall we call it that? Um, but you know what, it's the things that happen, I'm not better. I mean, I was very, very sad about, about losing Madiba because like everyone else, because I was, you know, he was part of my life as well so I mean it is that's the sad part of the book but I'm not going to make excuses for things and if you know if you found, find it unpleasant then you know, it's, no, I'm not saying it's unpleasant I'm just saying that there, but there is you have to admit whether bitter is the right word or not there is definitely mm-hmm. a shift in tone absolutely you know, because there was a shift in life from you as the life. writer not just because he's, he's done there was, there was a shift in life you know mm-hmm. it was a it was a life changing event for all of us mm-hmm. but then it was a very traumatic life uh, changing event for all of us mm. and um, people ask me everyone asked me when is the last time you saw him now you can read it, it's in the book the mm. 11th of July tell me finally before I, I, I open it up to questions um, I think one thing that we haven't sort of brought out in this conversation is how just how fond of you Nelson Mandela was and how important you were to him and, with, um, and don't be coy don't be falsely modest just Tell us. I mean, his, his eyes would light up um, when you came along, uh, when you appeared. Yes, and his in, eyes equally light up when he, see, when he saw you. I mean, he had special relationships with a lot of people. He was happy to see a lot of people. What you need to what, read in the book is that, um, to me, it felt like no one else loved me the way Madiba did. Hmm. But that's me. I can't speak on his behalf. Fair enough. On that note, um, we'll now open it up to questions. Um, and I think, are there, is there a microphone? And there's some people up here. Well, that, I saw that gentleman was the first of the whole lot to put his hand up. So I think, out of fairness, if you can get a microphone to put your hands. Zelda, you won't know what a great pleasure it is to meet you at last. Uh, you have been... Um, I would say somebody that has been formidable in keeping me away from Madiba. (laughs) I congratulate you for that. I did a tribute to Madiba, which was in 1999, a book, House of Commons book of messages, and it's got 700 messages in it from everyone from Barack Obama to support McCartney, handwritten messages, even messages from people, politicians who once referred to him as a terrorist. The only person that refused to sign a message in the book was Margaret Thatcher because she said that on his retirement she had already written a letter to him. I'm sure you would have seen that letter. So I wrote back and said, can we see a copy of that letter? So she, of course, okay, I'm happy you back. did that and not me. <laughs> yeah. But my question is this. Um, I've met him uh, on a few occasions, lucky enough to have been embraced by him, and he made you always feel that you were the only person in the room. He had that special quality about him. And I always remember one question uh, that was asked by a journalist at an event I helped to organize, which he was a speaker at, at the British Library. Um, and it was a BP event. 
uh, which you might recall. I remember, yes. You remember that. And yeah. uh, Doreen Lawrence was there, a friend of mine, and, uh, and lots of other people. And the question that was asked to him, and I remember this to this day, was, uh, Madiba, you are my hero, but who is your hero? And everyone expected him to say Gandhi or Anne Frank even, um, or, or Martin Luther King, but he said, young lady, my heroes are the ordinary people of the world, the road sweepers, the builders, they are my hero. And every time I go to Africa and I see the women working in the fields who are supporting their families for pittance, I see them as my heroes too. And that's what made him special. But my question finally is this. Uh, what did he think of Margaret Thatcher? And did he really... Um, I, I mean, I've heard so many rumours. I mean, she didn't actually call him a terrorist. She said the ANC, she didn't approve terrorist of the terrorist tactics. Mm. But what did, when he met her, what was their relationship like? You know, that's the thing that um, people don't get about, or to me, this is, again, it's my, it's my perception on things or my view on things. What I think people didn't get about Madiba, because what John didn't ask is about Gaddafi. Everyone has been asking me the whole day about Gaddafi and Madiba's relationship with Gaddafi. Um, he had vast differences with people, but it was never a basis of disrespect. I mean, we visited Margaret Thatcher, Thatcher on a few occasions after her retirement um, and when, when Dennis was still alive. Um, and it was never, you know, it was, it was always courteous. And he had tea with her. He actually went to visit her when she, when she got ill to have tea with her because he forgave her for, for whatever she said and whatever she, her views were of the ANC. Um, it was never, it was never, he never held grudges against people. Now, you know, if you think he didn't have grudges against us, Afrikaners, mm. I'm here sitting, I'm the proof of that. Mm. Why should he be angry at Margaret Thatcher? Mm. <laughs> exactly. But also because he's such a, as you said before, he's such a consummate political animal. Here's Margaret Thatcher. She's the Prime Minister of Britain. You know, what on earth am I going to gain from, make, from antagonizing her? You know, quite the opposite. Exactly, exactly. I mean, he didn't condone everything that everyone did always, you know, but, but um, he, uh, he criticized people in private, not always in public, but he criticized people and he told them when he, di when he disagreed with them, but it was never a basis of disrespect. Mm. Next question, and, and please, I think there's probably going to be a lot of people who want to ask questions, so if we can just come to the point of the question as <laughs> briefly as possible. Um, oh, sorry, um, maybe this gentleman over here, I think he was the next one to... Thank you. Um, hi, Zelda, and thank you very much for sharing your experiences with us. I'm looking forward to reading the book uh, shortly. Um, you spoke earlier on about how your views uh, were quite conservative and quite right-wing from your upbringing in South Africa, and you spoke about your voting. What was it about Madiba and about perhaps his actions or his words that changed or affected you the most in your own personal views? Um, the fact that he went through so much trouble maybe to get me to understand that these principles of the ANC that he stood for, um, that, I, that, that I got to understand that, what it was all about, and that he was so patient and tolerant in, in bringing me about to, to get an understanding of my own country's history and the injustices of the past. So it's really, you know, the, why, why, would he, why would he embrace his typist, you know, to try and, and, and change her? Um, so I think it's really the trouble and the affection, obviously, you know, that, that he felt for me. Um, I deal with that in the book quite extensively um, on a plane to London one night, uh, on a British Airways plane. 
He he woke up and he went to the bathroom and coming back I was I was still um, lying down and I saw him passing me and the security helping him obviously and then he covered my feet with a blanket mm. and I thought to myself I can't even remember my parents tucking me in um, and yeah this man is covering my feet I'm supposed to look after him he's looking after me how does that not change you at the end then you know <laughs> all right that gentleman there please. Thank you, Zelda, for, for, uh, uh, for the presentation. Um, I saw you last night on uh, Newsnight, and the interview said, referred to Mandela as one of the greatest men on, on, on this uh, in history. I contend that uh, Mahatma Gandhi was even greater than, than Nelson Mandela. Uh, please, please. Uh, because he's, he uh, presided over the destruction and dismantling of the British Empire. You stated uh, that uh, you went to Saudi Arabia and you were met with courtesy by the Saudi Arabians. You were very lucky because that's not how they treat the women. I worked in Saudi Arabia. But the, the point I was trying to say, you, in your years uh, of association with Nelson Mandela, did you, uh, did you come, come across uh, the, the development of the atomic bomb, which was done between Israelis and uh, the apartheid regime, which was which Mandela dismantled, um, I would like to know whether you, you are aware of it or are you? No, sir. Unfortunately, well, not. this is the developed jointly developed it because the Arabs, Arab nations, were against the apartheid regime, and specifically uh, Saddam Hussein and Gaddafi. So, and they paid the price, the ultimate price, and. Uh, would you would you say that uh, now that uh, Mandela's passed away, uh, the sacrifice he gave, his life he gave for the South African p p people, is it worth it when you see the rampant corruption, when you see the unemployment, when you see this the the looting of the national resources? Okay, so that's very long. I, I, think, I, think I, I can't remember what you asked first. Yeah. Um, thank you, sir. Thank you, respectfully. Thank you. I don't know about the atomic bomb. I'm sorry, I was never involved or interested in politics of that nature that I would even know about it. If it was, it, it was discussed behind closed doors, I was not interested in it, to be quite honest with you. But that was going on during the time when you were voting for all the racist oh, parties. Wasn't you, you, you would have been completely in favour of oh, the atomic yes. bomb in South Africa at the time. <laughs> no question. Yes. Um, no, and, and, and was it worth the sacrifice? Yes, sir. I think, I think if you had to ask him, yes, he would definitely say so. You know what? Um, democracy gave people dignity in South Africa, nothing else. I mean, um, nothing else gave them dignity like <coughs> democracy. So, so was it worth it? Yes, for them, definitely. Um, oh, that gentleman there with the, yeah, the, with the red grain. Oh. Oh, this, this, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Shall I read it? Okay. Tanzania. Uh, Tanzania. From Paul and Tula. Hello, Zelda. My name is Paul from Tanzania. Your chat interview is awesome. Would like to ask you a question. Okay, has South Africa been affected negatively since Nelson Mandela died? 
he, I think he's in a better position to answer that. He's a journalist, so um, has it. I, we feel the loss, definitely. I, I, yeah, no, of course, but don't you think that... Um, I mean, there was a lot of nonsense written last year when it was clear that he was dying. A lot of nonsense written, in, especially in foreign newspapers, not so much in South Africa, about some kind of, you know, <clears throat> apocalypse now on the day after he died or whatever. Which Uhuru. Was just, which was just, you know, or, you know Armageddon. Uhuru. Whatever. Mm. But, I mean, it, just, it, it was just nonsense. Because, I mean, for, apart from anything else, Mandela, as you know, but anybody, was really out of the political picture for really quite a long Many time. Many years, yeah. And, uh, and I think, if anything... If anything, in a way, his death was rather than negative, as the question Paul asks, I'd say positive, in that it obliged everybody to pause and reflect on him and remember mm. what he stood mm. for. That's which, right. which you know, As the gentleman was just saying, obviously there's a great deal of disappointment about what's going on now. Mm. Mm. No, absolutely. But, you know, people, people just poured out their hearts and souls and grief, and everyone in South Africa felt a sense of loss because of Madiba passing, and in a strange way, he united us all again, even through his death. That lady there. Yes, time we had a woman, for heaven's sake, sorry. <laughs> um, thank you very much for your talk. Um, listening to you speak, I think you dealt with the themes very respectfully and sensitively, and I feel the world was very interested in Nelson Mandela, the man, and in a sense, like these anecdotes, these stories you have in a way, kind of belong to us all. However, I was wondering how you personally reacted to um, or are reacting to attacks that you've used your access to Nelson Mandela for some sort of personal gain. For personal gain. Mm. You know what? I will even defend people's right to criticize me. Um, if that's the way they feel, no, mon you know, money is not a driving factor for all of us. Um, if that's what they project, you know, I, I, I can't argue against that. Um, I have to be happy with myself. I have to live with myself for the rest of my life after this book. I've got an obligation to share the lessons that I've learned. And these are my experiences. It's not a tell-all book. I didn't affect his dignity or the confidentiality between me and him or his wife or the foundation. So people are entitled to have their opinion if, you know, even... even despite all the things I've mentioned to you. Yeah, but I mean, if I can just say something, Zelda, we, we spoke about you doing a book quite some time ago. We mm -hmm. kept it, obviously, very much between ourselves. But I, mean, but I think what I said to you right from the very first time the idea was raised is that actually, far from being something which you should be criticised for having you know, taken advantage of the access you had to Mandela to write a book, I would have criticised you for not doing it. It would, have been, it would have been a sort of a criminal waste for someone like you who was so close to Mandela during you know, these 19 years of his life. And, of course, it also it was a period, don't forget, where for whatever combination of reasons, he wasn't able to write the second part of his autobiography. Mm, that's all funny, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. All the more reason. I mean, I think it would have been absolutely shameful and appalling if you hadn't done this book because you owe it to South Africa in particular and to all people interested in Mandela to do this. Yeah, you know, at the, at the end, you, you also have to... One of the things I've learned from Madiba is you can't please everyone. There is, you are never, ever going to please everyone. So you have to do with what is right in your heart. And these 376 pages, I'm happy with in my heart. I, couldn't have, I, I could have written three times the size of this book, and that would be a tell-all book. But, um, you know, this I'm happy with because this is the Madiba I want to share with the world because of this enormous privilege that I've had. Um, there you go. We're going to get a... 
Get a few Hi, Zelda. Um, just a question from me. One thing that's really apparent from you talking, uh, I haven't had a chance to read the book yet, but is how much you helped Mandela and the role that you played in his life and so on and so forth. One thing that really strikes me is what now for you? Um, how do you go from being his absolute right-hand woman, probably great confidant and so on, where do you go to from there? Uh, he doesn't know yet. How, I'm becoming his secretary now. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to how, be a great disappointment, though. <laughs> quite. I, th- I think what you're saying is, how do you beat that? Am I you right? can't. You can't. No, you know what? Um, people will probably think I'm really stupid saying this, but I actually th- I'm contemplating selling flowers for the rest of my life. I want to be surrounded by beautiful things and peace and not worrying about anything else than these flowers must not die today. Um, <laughs> I want to be at peace. You know, I don't, I don't want any stress. I don't want to travel. I, don't want any, <laughs> I really just want to be at peace with myself and with the world. And, and um, I mean, someone, actually, our, the South African ambassador in Spain at one point, Gert Grobler, he said to me, you know, he's watched life and it's a, it's a circle, you know, and you want, the, you, you tend to want the most ordinary things again, you know, when you've almost completed that circle. I hope, you know, touch wood, I'm fine tomorrow morning, but, um, you know, I, I'm back at the simple things. I just want, I don't know what next. I've also learned through writing this book that you will be, life will take you where you're supposed to be. Um, there's no, there's no use in having a five-year plan because it may, it's, it's not going to happen. So you know, allow life, life to take you on, on, on a road you're supposed to be. It's like that thing they say: How do you make God laugh? Tell him your plans. <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. Um, that lady. Tell us the Walter Sisulu story. What's that? You started off by telling us that the Walter Sisulu story. When he, when, he, when he passed on, mm, mm. yeah, that's, it, was a, it was a very, very sad night um, mm. that, he, that he actually, I got a call from someone in the ANC and they said to me that Uncle Walter passed away and it was already about 10 o'clock at night, I think, and Mrs. Michelle was in Mozambique that day and I drove to the house because I knew that's not the type of thing you say to someone over the telephone and the housekeeping stuff I told him why I was there and we didn't really know how to deal with it and I went up to his bedroom and sat or touched his feet and I said Kulu, Kulu, I need to tell you something and he was still sleeping, I couldn't wake him up and then I touched his shoulder and I said "Um, Kulu, Kulu, I need you to wake up, I need to tell you something and then he woke up as if he's expecting me to to ask him something and he said yes Aldina and um, I said, I've got very, very bad news for you. Uncle Walter passed away. And you could see, you know, it didn't immediately register with him. And um, then he said, so just repeat that. And I repeated it. And he, it was shock. Yeah. And I sat there for a few minutes just trying to console him and to see what his reaction would be. Because, it, I mean, with old people, and we've learned that over time, you try not to you expose them to too much shock or, you know, surprises and so on, because you, you, you fear for their health um, as well. So it was a very, very sad day. And the next morning, and then he said, when I left him, I, he said, um, please call me, wake me up the next morning. So I called him, I think, at 5 o'clock to wake him up, and then we went to the Cecilia's residence. Mm. I mean, they were terribly, terribly close. They really were sort of they more, were than, really, more than brothers, weren't yes, they? Yes, yes. Huh? I mean, you know, 27 years, yeah. day and night, 
And yeah. the, I mean, this is your soundboard. This is this, this is the person you 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 share everything with this person. So you can imagine. And I remember one story about when, when they were in prison. They had a relationship that was. In one sense, it was kind of, sort of the intimacy of, of a married couple. But apparently, you know, he used to call Mandela used to call Sisulu Chopo, if mm. I'm not mistaken. Mm, mm, mm. And but when he was cross with him, he called him Walter. But he, so he, he did that. He did that with all of us. Really? <laughs> he had a nickname uh-huh. for you, and when he was angry, he could yeah, he would call me Zelda. Oh, what have I done now? Oh, really? Um, like yeah. That. Okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. So well, that's a nice little detail. Yeah. Mm. Um, right. I'm just curious, could you tell us something about his relationship with Helen Sulzman? Um, a very good, very, very good relationship. Maybe John would know more. Um, I mean, that's before my time. When I joined him, you know, they had regular contact. He had great respect for her, great appreciation for what she did whilst he was in prison. Um, and, you know, he always, he always cared for her. She was a dear, dear friend of his. But historically, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm, I, I can't give you much detail. Um, but he had great appreciation for her. Um. Microphone coming. When Nelson Mandela gave the first memorial lecture for Bram Fisher, his Africana QC who represented him at the Ravenia trial, he said that uh, he had a peculiar kind of courage because he, Mandela, only had to fight against injustice against his people, but Fisher uh, had to accept the rejection of his own people did he ever talk to you about Bram Fisher and the influence that he had on him? Um, yes, uh, also the same as Ellen Susman, great respect for him and, and um, appreciation for him, but uh, equally with, you know, with, with, with people who played a role in, in the liberation struggle. Um, I, can't, you know, I don't deal with something like that in my book because it's not you know, part of my experiences, but um, he had overall great respect for, for, for them, yeah. That gentleman up there... Hi. Um, when Nelson Mandela died uh, on, on Twitter, I saw lots of black South Africans saying, feeling unhappy that he, they used the word, he's been rainbow washed. Um, and funny enough, you saw the same thing. I've seen The Telegraph interviewed uh, Carl Borsov Jr. at Unuranya, and he said he has great respect for Nelson Mandela, but the media is preparing him as a teddy bear, a figure that, that, you know, that everybody wants to hug, but he was a fighter. And that, that this was diminishing him. Uh, I just wanted to, to hear your perspective on that. The wonderful thing about our constitution in South Africa is that we allow those kind of comments and criticisms. Um, you know, and people have a right to do to, to say what they feel, um, even if we disagree with them. Um, yeah, I've got little else to say. You know, I don't. I, I choose not to engage with. With, with things um, that can't be substantiated. I have, I'm privileged and I'm prejudiced because I've had first-hand experience of the human being, Nelson Mandela. So um, uh, young black people in South Africa feel very unhappy at um, the pace of which economic transformation has happened in South Africa, rightfully so. Again, I've been privileged to travel with Madiba to the most rural areas in South Africa. I've seen it firsthand. I've seen poverty firsthand in South Africa. I know how, how difficult it is for a government to deal 
um, at a reasonable pace with those challenges because we've been in government. Um, so they're not completely wrong. They need to, the, the current go government need to do something to fast track that. I'm not a polit politician, so I really, I can't go into too much detail. But just to say my experiences with Madiba, unity and reconciliation was the most important thing for us to deal with in his presidency and successfully done. Hmm. If I could just, just give me a sec, um, I'll just come to you in a sec. Um, now, one thing that I, I was on, on TV just minutes after he died, and I was asked about Mandela's legacy or whatever, and I made the point that, and I just wondered what you think of it, that um, the great thing was that now even Mandela in death was unifying the country because there would be practically absolute unanimity between black and white people in celebration of his life and mourning of his death. I mean, is that your experience of white South Africans? You, you travelled your journey, but I think it's important to make the point you had an extraordinarily special privileged yeah, journey, true, true. But, it, but it wasn't a complete aberration. So many other people, including, I imagine, your own family, have moved yes. on. Yes, no, absolutely, and um, I always say to people, because by my own people, you know, I get fought with all the time because they feel they even said the other night I'm now wearing my hair like black people you know <laughs> um, so you know I get criticized yeah I get criticized over nonsense all the time and I do recognize that I'm, I'm I'm prejudiced in a way because of my experiences but you know what you you also have to get to a point where you allow people just to believe what they want and not to change it's one of the most important things Nelson Mandela taught me is it's easier to change other people than it is to change yourself so worry about the self. Don't worry about other people. They have, they have to follow their own journey. That lady. Um, microphone. A lot of people who campaigned against um, South African apartheid now talk about Israeli apartheid. Did Mandela? Oh, sorry, no, did I repeat that again? Sorry. A lot of people who campaigned against South African apartheid now talk about Israeli apartheid. Did Mandela? I deal, with, I deal with our visit to the Middle East, um, but again, I can't speak on his behalf on something like this. You must really read the book because I, I do go in great detail um, what he thought is the solution in the Middle East. Um, so, yeah, but I can't speak on his behalf or what he did or didn't do um, with regard to Israel. Um, the one lady in pink. Um, what do you think of the current presidency in South Africa? <laughs> South Africa. <laughs> okay. mm. You know what? He's the president. I have to respect him. And that's it. <laughs> he, uh, you know, he's, he's, um, he's part of the ideals, you know, that Madiba believed in. He's part of that organization. And I may not be happy with everything he does, um, but again, you know, that's, that's me. I'm prejudiced because I've had an experience. I've walked next to Nelson Mandela, so I can't really, I'm, I'm not in a position to, to fairly criticize him. Yeah. Just can you pass the microphone to the gentleman to your right there? Oh, Thank you. Uh, what relationship uh, did Mandela have with um, dictatorial regimes in other parts of Africa? 
like Ethiopia, for example. I remember in, in his book, in The Long Walk to Freedom, he mentions General Tadeseburu, who was later, I mean, Tadeseburu was yeah, so Nelson Mandela's uh, military training mm. coach. Mm. Yeah, he, uh, he later on, he was training. But, but you know what? It's not part of my story. That's a historical thing you have to ask the Nelson Mandela Foundation, you know, to really get a sense of, of his relationship with, with Ethiopia. It's not, it's not something I can talk about firsthand. I've never been to Ethiopia with him, so it's not something I can, I can speak of. Um, yeah, I think we should give the people up, upstairs a, a, a shot. Um, this gentleman here in the, in the front with the white T-shirt. Baie dankie en baie dankie vir jou gesprek. My question is, you talked about how South Africa was sort of united in the death of Mandela, but I sort of want... Sorry, too close. I said that. Oh, you said that. Okay, would you? Okay. (laughs) (laughs) You've both said it. (laughs) Um, uh, I'd sort of like to challenge both of you on this because... Like, uh, for example, the stadiums were half full because it was raining, so people didn't want to come out. Uh, Desmond Tutu, he... Uh, you really need his... to read my book. <laughs> okay, okay, well, I'll ask you. Uh, Desmond Tutu's house was broken into, no, during the processions. Mm. Um, what else? Uh, the clerk didn't even really get a good seat in the whole thing, despite being sort of a partner in the struggle. The clerk. The clerk. The clerk. Uh, right. FW, the clerk. Yeah, so I'm just would like I to. Deal, I deal with okay. it in my book. I can. I, yeah, you, but since you you're asking the to... question, I was there at the FMB Stadium Memorial, and I was there actually not with the VIPs, like, I was there in the thick of the, of the, of the noisiest, mm-hmm. most loudest, most dancing masses. Um, and actually, the memorial at the FMB Stadium. Was the best part was before Zuma and all the dignitaries arrived. It just all sort of disintegrated afterwards. We had a great deal of fun. But I mean, for example, you talk about you, you question the unity thing. It was fascinating how the people there, who were a really sort of very representative cross section, certainly of urban black South Africa. You know, it was kind of Soweto and Black Johannesburg there, and there were three or four white people like me in in, in, the, in the mix, and. Um, and it was almost like a sort of vocal referendum because, you know, when names were mentioned of famous dignitaries arriving or when you saw their pictures up on the, on the big screen, mm. people responded. You know, and they responded with a round boo every time that Zuma appeared on the image or his name was mentioned. And they gave F. Vier de Klerk a really warm round of applause. It was really fascinating. Mm-hmm. And then when Malema appeared, they gave him a boo. Um, so, I mean, the fact that they were booing Zuma, you know, celebrating and honoring Mandela and giving F.W. de Klerk, who was, you know, an oppressor almost as bad as Zelda was back in those days, um, was sort of interesting, I thought. Mm. Anyway, um, yes, the gentleman at the back there and also the white T-shirt. Uh, thank you for the talk. Um, to go back to President Zuma, on a trip... I made South Africa in 2010. I, I was staying with this um, mixed-race family, and they, were, they, they continue to emphasize the growing divide between the Afrikaans and the mix. And I also observed that at, the, at President Zuma's rally, where there was essentially all Afrikaans in the stadium. And I remember her emphasizing that, because although you say um, that currently the presidency is sort of building on the ideals of Nelson Mandela, in my observation, and just, I guess those I spoke to, I would disagree, just because 
it's sort of as if they're using the platform he's created as a as a means of kind of extending their political power. But the comments he's made on issues such as HIV/AIDS, which is so Who such now? a major Pre- President Zuma, um, are very striking. And and so I'm curious if at any point in Nelson Mandela's presidency, if he ever spoke to you about his fear of where the ANC may head after, after he was done? Um, because obviously it's headed in a completely different direction from what I would say he intended, at least. Yeah, well, he, you know what? He, he remained a loyal member of the ANC until the day he passed on. Um, and he was always going to stand for, with ideals based on the Freedom Charter that was drafted in, what, 19... 19- 52. Um, Those were the ideals and, and, you know, individuals um, interpret things differently. But, but you know, as far as Mr. Mandela, he didn't didn't discuss his his unhappiness with any leader. He was a loyal member of the ANC. He he disliked certain things. He was completely intolerant of, of dishonesty and corruption. And read that in my book and then you make your own assumptions, you know, of how he would feel about certain things. Hmm. Um, the book that's that's really this is not a um, uh, this is not a definitive book on Nelson Mandela. These are my experiences. If you want to read how he felt about anything, for instance, look at the uh, book Conversations with Myself. Um, that was published by the Nelson Mandela Foundation. That gives you, there's a quote about everything in life um, and how Mr. Mandela considered, considered certain things. And, and that's a book to, to refer to if you want to know how he felt about things. But also you say, you seem to suggest that this has been a complete betrayal of Mandela's values. Well, that's just a completely ridiculous thing to say for the simple reason that, I mean, sure, they're corrupt. Sure, they're inefficient. Sure, they're incompetent. Sure, they're self-seeking. But the fact is that Compare South Africa in terms of the core democratic values. Compare it with, for example, another country that came to democracy at the same time, Russia. Which country ticks more democratic boxes, South Africa or Russia? In terms of, in terms of the, really the core democratic point, there is freedom of the press. You know, Zelda, I, anybody. I mean, the, the press is ragingly free in South Africa. I mean, to an almost shocking extent. Too free. You know, the, there's well, maybe even too free. Whatever you would say that as an old gatekeeper, but yeah, yeah. But I mean, I think I think you know, no one questions the freedom and fairness of the elections that take place. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, people are not bumped off for saying what they think. Um, strikes go on for a year, and it's a terrible thing. But no one comes in, you know, and says that I don't know, whatever. I mean, there's a whole lot of there's still a lot of freedoms, despite the fact that the that Mandela's South Africa has been sullied. But the core stuff that he fought for remains there. Mm. Yeah, go ahead. I think people have very short memories. Um, I was born in South Africa. I left in the early 70s, but I've been back on a regular basis. And it's a completely different country to what it was then. Anyone who lived through apartheid will know that South Africa was a terrible country to live in, uh, unless you were blind to what was going on. It, it was a fascist state, and you had to be really careful what you said and what you thought, as long as if you thought differently to what was going on. Um, it was a horrendous country to visit. It is not like that at all at the moment. There's, it's, it's not going to. It's not a, a perfect state. It's any corrupt and inequalities are great, <clears throat> and those are things that need to be tackled. Mm. Uh, Mandela did a, a miracle. I never believed that South Africa would change in my lifetime as it's done. Mm. 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 
Um, I think we, we, we're going to wind up now. Let me just maybe ask you one final thing, Zelda. Uh, there was a review in the Sunday Times here of London this, this um, couple of days ago um, in which the, in the final line there's a suggestion that Mandela, Nelson Mandela had in some way sort of enslaved you and if he'd been more true to his sort of, you know, the generous values that he preached, yeah. he should have set you free to, to live your own life um, that you were a kind of, you know yeah, that he enslaved you so what would you say, I mean my in, view would in, be that in, you're in, just so damn lucky that I mean I just can't see yeah. anyone say that. But in any relationship these two parties um I mean, no, he didn't, he didn't hold me at ransom and said, you will stay until the last day. It was by choice. Mm. And given that opportunity, I would do exactly the same over, all over again, exactly the same. I would even try and keep you away again. <laughs> um, it, it, I mean, you, you cannot... <clears throat> I, I do not comprehend, as I sit here, I cannot comprehend fully the value of this man in my life. And um, so now did he imprison me by, by not letting me go earlier? Definitely not. It was by choice. I remained committed and I promised him that I would not abandon him and I can happily walk away. Now I can walk away saying, I've done it. Great. Well, um, thank you very much, everybody, for coming. You should know that Zelda is going to be um, signing books. I've read the book. It's a delightful, delicious read um, packed with fantastic anecdotes and um, some pretty gritty stuff in particular towards the end too. Um, warmly recommended. Zelda will be signing books afterwards. Thank you very much for coming and thank you above all for Zelda for being so damn great and looking after Nelson Mandela so well for us for all those years. Thank you. Thank you.